Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Well, I trust everyone had a great Christmas. Looking forward to a New Year celebration. As quickly as it came upon us, it's gone, right? It's time for something else coming. Wow. So Happy New Year to everybody. I want to talk to you today about a heinous obsession or perhaps a common poison. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the street drug Trank, but Trank is a kind of a horse tranquilizer that people are using on the street, and it causes open wounds. Have you not heard of it? It's on the streets and all the news. And these open wounds then lead to a kind of necrosis in the skin, where the skin is eaten away, and they have to amputate. You would think that people would stop taking the drug Trank, or it's called the zombie drug, because it gets to the point where they have to have an amputation, and then it becomes fatal. It's a poison. It's a heinous obsession. But I want to talk to you today about a poison that's right here in our church a heinous obsession that all of us struggle with, that all of us wrestle with every day. There is this poison that affects all of us, and it comes in through our eyes, through our ears, through our mouths, our hands, and yes, it comes in through our minds as well. There's a poison that all of us are dealing with. Do you want to know about it? Wouldn't you want to warn your kids about it, your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors? It paralyzes us, this poison. It leads to a purposelessness, a hopelessness, and it can lead to depression, and it can even be fatal. It saps us of our true joy and contentment. It leads to anger, poor relationships, conflict, and an animus toward others. So what is this poison? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Jeremiah talks about it in Jeremiah 2. Can we go to that one? The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah 2, go and proclaim in the hearing of all Jerusalem. This is what God says. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the desert in a land that had no vegetation. I wish you could read this in Hebrew. This is a love note. Even in English, you see the tenderness and the love and the compassion and the care that God has for his young bride, his youthful love. Verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. You know what it's like in May? That first tomato comes out of the garden. And man, you smell that tomato. You don't even want to bite into it because it just smells different than something you get at ShopRite or Stop and Shop. And then the cucumber comes out. Oh boy. You don't know whether you're going to make it into a salad or a sandwich, but boy, it's going to be good. (laughs) And God says, you were a first fruit to me when we loved each other, when we were so close and intimate. We were lovers. Verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, I'm not a math major, but I think that's the second time in this short section that God says, hear the word of the Lord. Why? Because we don't hear. We don't listen. We have spiritual amnesia and forget what God is saying. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, 
What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me and went after worthless idols and they became worthless themselves? You know what that poison is? It's idolatry. Idolatry of the heart. That's the poison that we all wrestle with. Why did you leave me, God says? What wrong did your fathers find in me? And so that's why we begin to disobey God. Either we think he doesn't love us anymore, he doesn't care, or maybe he's just too busy and doesn't know what's best for us. That's what we conclude and we begin to love other things. Well, can we have a definition of idolatry? Because I know what you're thinking now. (laughs) Idolatry, that's for some third world country, you know. I don't have a Buddha in my living room. I don't have a statue of some goat sticking around. You know, I'm way too sophisticated for that. That'd be barbaric. I'm more enlightened. I'm not that backwards. Hmm. But how might we define what an idol is? Can I offer a definition to you? An idol is anything that brings or gives meaning or significance instead of God. It's loving the gift more than the giver. It's using the gifts and ignoring the giver. Imagine Christmas morning, you know, and and you give your five-year-old this beautiful train set, you know, and and he opens it up and it's just beautiful. You know it's going to take about three hours, you know, or at least until the first football game to get that thing together. So you say, Johnny, can I help you put that train set together? You know, you and dad together. Oh, it's a great Christmas. See you, dad. You're excused now. I'll take care of the train set. Dad, there's a chair over there for you. I'll see you at dinner. Uh, do you feel what that would feel like? Johnny, don't you want my help? Johnny, don't you want me to be with you? Johnny, don't you need my wisdom and knowledge and experience of putting the tracks together piece by piece? Don't you know I love you and find joy in seeing you put that train set together? I want to be a part of You can go now, Dad. <laughs> That's kind of like what idolatry is. Martin Luther said our hearts are constant factories of idols. The Puritans said there are three categories of idols. One is position or power. The other is people. People can become idols. And the third category they used is possessions. So can I suggest some to you? Maybe some of us are wrestling with these idols now, and it becomes poisonous to us and wrecks our souls, destroys our spirits, interferes with our relationships, and robs us of our joy. Now, this is just for other people in Beacon. Nobody in this room, Sal, goes through any of these. How about respect? (laughs) Now, that's one I struggle with. Oh, if I'm doing something and I get disrespected and people don't see what I've done at work or other places, oh, Boy, that puts a bee in my bonnet. Now, don't look at me with those church eyes. I've just confessed my sin, my, my idol. How about some other ones? Get, get the focus off mine. Significance. Wanting to be significant. Achievements. All those things we do with our kids. You know, we have trophies and shirts and ribbons. And let's just become important by all the things that we achieve. Titles. Doctor, chief, general, CEO, CFO, manager, pastor. 
deacon or bishop? How about relationships? Either I seek approval in relationships, I want people to like me, or intimacy. If I just met that special person, that special somebody, then I'd be happy. How about our 401ks, our annuities? Oh, boy, when that stock market was tanking a few months ago, I'd be talking to people that I'd visit my patients in a hospice, and they'd say, ah, boy, my 401ks tanked. How you feeling? Oh, I'm down. My annuities are And so their happiness, their joy, dependent on a 401k or annuity. How about a house or a car or a boat? You've heard the two best days in a boat owner's life are when? The day he buys it, Mike, go ahead, and the day he sells it, thank you. If I just had that beautiful boat for my family to go out on the weekends, oh, my life would be perfect. Wrong. If I just had the right house in the right neighborhood, Lisa, right? If I could just buy the right house and use Lisa as my real estate agent, as pleasant and sweet as she is, oh, my life would be heaven. And how many of us aren't driving our, our 2010 Toyota around and we see the Ferrari go by? If I could just drive that Corvette or a Ferrari, oh, then things would be good. But we don't suffer from idolatry, none of us in this room. How about collections? How about baseball card collections, stamps, coins? Ha! See, none of us are involved in that. But I got to tell you, I have a patient here in Dutchess County, and every time I visit him, 88 years old, you know what he's doing? He's putting his cars, he's got these little matchbox cars, he's putting them in perfect order, and they've gotta be cleaned and in the right order. It can't be out of, out of whack, that's all he does, besides eating and sleeping. How about, shall I say it, sports teams? <laughs> Now, maybe some of you aren't sports fanatics, but if your team loses on Sunday, the rest of your week is... But boy, if they win and beat the spread, yes. Then your week is good. Nothing else matters. So sometimes sports teams can be a struggle. How about fitness? Some of us say fitness is what I live for. Appearance. How about religious activity? Got to be a church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Got to be there. Well, what's the etiology or the cause of these idols? Can I suggest to you that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart? Can I say that again? With Christianity, and I'm sharing these things with you today. You know why? Because what I'm sharing with you today changed my ministry back in 1990s. It changed the way I counseled. It changed the way I preached and taught. It changed the way I shepherded and ministered. Because the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. We have a tree here. And I need you to pretend with me that it's an apple tree. Actually, it's a very bizarre tree. I might call it a pineapple Oh, that's terrible. Dan, I thought I saw you laugh on that one. Cindy came to my apple tree, Sal, and said, apples are dying. The apples are gross. They're small. They're rotten. They're disgusting. But you know, Joe, what we do as husbands, we jump in and we fix the problem. 
I said, I've got it, sweetheart. I'm going to run right to Tops, and I'm going to grab some apples. Makes sense. So I put the apples on the tree. Now, some of you are laughing. I don't know why. And this worked when we, oh, there you go. It may not stay. There you go. And so I put, for illustration purposes, I put the apples all over the tree. And I say, Cindy, look, it's beautiful. The tree is restored. It has apples. And she looks at me and says, are you serious? The tree has no life. There's no inner core to give life to those apples. There's no heart driving the life of the fruits that is going to continue to grow. Say, any idiot knows that, right? So why in the Christian life do we say, just go to church? Just read the Bible. Just pray more. And maybe if we do all that, the fruit will flourish. It doesn't flourish, does it, Sal? Because there's no heart. There's no life. Because idols are at the core of the tree. So let's look at Jeremiah 2 again, 11 through 13. Do we have that? Let me see again. Back to Jeremiah 2. Has a nation changed its gods? even though they are no gods at all. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. You should be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've carved out these cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now who would do that? That'd be as ridiculous as putting apples on a dead tree. And yet what we do is come up and devise idols, broken cisterns. And we think we're going to put our life and our joys and our families in these cisterns, and they leak. That's Jeremiah 11 through 13. How about Jeremiah 19 and 20? Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. No one see that it's evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you. Down to verse 20, for long ago... I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. But you said, I will not serve you. On every high hill, under every green tree, you bowed down. And look at the illustrative language. Not only is it love language, but it's adulterous language. 31 and 32 of Jeremiah 2. It refers to a devotion, a most intimate degree of loyalty, a faithfulness, and that God loves us in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. I have been a wilderness to Israel. Have I really been the land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say we're free and we don't need to come to you anymore? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride, her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. Spiritual amnesia. We politely neglect God through it all. And lastly, Jeremiah 2.37 is one of my favorites here. Look at the consequences of idolatry. Do we even have that? Maybe we don't have that one. Your hands, Jeremiah 2.37 says, will be on your heads. Any football fans out here? Some, right? I'm not a Jet fan, but I did enjoy a Jet game a few weeks ago. There was like four seconds left in the half. 
So, so the coach goes ahead and says, let's do a Hail Mary, right? That sounds good. We're on the 50-yard line. Just toss the ball up and hope somebody jumps. Maybe it'll get tipped. Maybe we'll get a touchdown. Yay! Sounds like a good idea, right? Four seconds long. So the quarterback goes back. He tosses the ball into the end zone. What happens? It got intercepted. Now you think, I had an interception. Probably run the ball out three or four yards. Well, the other team intercepted the ball. He got to the 20, to the 40, to the 50. The other team's 40, 10, touchdown. On a Hail Mary with three seconds left. Why didn't you just fall on the ball? And then the camera scanned the jet sideline. And you know what they were doing? (laughs) That's what idolatry is like. You get so immersed and so ensconced in it. You think it's promising you everything, and it robs you of everything. And so we go around with our hands on our heads. Here's a principle I can suggest to you. We as human beings are made in the image of God, reflecting his glory and honor, and we're able to grieve God's heart, to break God's heart, to shatter his affection like nothing else can do. Angels don't break God's heart like that. Animals don't break God's heart like that. Nature, mountains, the depths of the sea can't break God's heart. But you and I can. And so God says that's a terrible, heinous obsession. Idolatry is an awful thing, he says. Now, you really can't find a good analogy. I'm going to suggest one, so. In junior high, they have these dances. Terrible things, these junior high dances. (laughs) Mike, did you go to these? Because in seventh, eighth grade, I looked like something from Mad Magazine. You know the dude on Mad Magazine? Yeah, freckles, the crew caught the hair. Yeah, you're laughing, but it wasn't funny for me. It was pretty painful. But, you know, I did the best I could, so I'd ask a young lady, let's go to the dance. And about after 1920, you know, people, someone would go with me. (laughs) So the mom would drive you and, you know, the prospective date to the dance, you know. And so we got there, and where'd she go? My date disappeared. Never, never saw her again the rest of the night. Now dancing with her friends and other people. And I'm just over here on the side. And that didn't happen just once. It happened a few times. <laughs> I started not going to dances anymore. Because are you feeling me? What that might feel like? To think you were there with someone else on a date and you just get pushed to the side. God loves us with such an incredible fantastic, tender love, a marvelous love, that when we push him to the side, it breaks his heart. He's so vulnerable with us. He's so forgiving. He's so loyal. He's so tender. There's this incomparable, marvelous love that he has for us that I can't even put into words, that we can only pray for each other, that he would show that to us, how much he loves us. And then there's another prophet, Isaiah 5, 1 through 5, where this poisonous, heinous obsession is repeated. Three different major prophets. It's a major theme in Hebrew theology. Can I suggest to you that God even took one prophet, Hosea. You remember the story of Hosea? 
Hosea, you're my prophet. You're going to be my representative. I just want you to do one thing for me. Oh, sure, God, whatever it is. I'm doing it, and I'm a servant, and I'm your loyal friend. Yeah, I want you to marry a prostitute. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Marry a prostitute and have three kids and give them names. But you know what? She's going to continue to be unfaithful to you. Uh, Lord, got a bad ear, you know? And I, I thought you just said marry a prostitute. Yeah, because I want you to be my live and living illustration that my people continue to be unfaithful to me and to love anything and everything else instead of me. Isaiah picks it up. Let me sing for my beloved, another love song. Let me sing for my beloved, my love, a love song concerning my vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it with stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He dug out a wine vat, a little place to store all the wine. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, nasty grapes. And do we have three through five? And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, judge between me and my vineyard, God says. What more was there to do? Could I have done? Here's the second question God asked in idolatry. What more could I have done? The first question, what fault did you find in me? Second question, what more could I have done? Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, you think you probably have asked that once or twice. What more could I have done? And the answer is nothing. What more was there to do for my vineyard? And is there verse 5 there? Yes, no, there is not verse 5. That's Isaiah. One more prophet, because I don't want you to go away empty-handed. Micah 6. Micah 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise. I love this section because God calls his people into a court. This is a court setting. This is a legal battle here, legal language. Plead your case before me, the mountains. Plead your case before me and let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, mountains, the indictment of the Lord. You enduring foundations of the earth. The Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. The next chart. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? So you see the third question? How have I wronged you? What more could I have done? The third question is what? What burden did I put upon you? Parents, grandparents, our kids say that to us, right? They don't love me and or they don't know what's best for me. And when we conclude that with God, we seek something else to give us meaning and significance. It's a heinous obsession. That's Micah 6. We're going to conclude with the end of Micah 6. So here's legal language. Can we look at anthropology 101 to help us understand idolatry? What do we know about ourselves? Who are we? And you want to put your seatbelts on for this one because you're going to be mad at me for what I'm about to say. First, who are we? We are created to worship. Now, don't get all churchy and religious on me. I like to say that in, in the hospice too. I say, hey, we're, we're created to worship, and they think, oh, we're going to liturgy now. We're going to say that our fathers, we're going to sing the hymns, we're going to quote the Westminster Confession. No, you created to worship. What do I mean by that? We want to adore something. We want to give worth to something. We want to love or be in awe of something in our lives. That's the way we're made. You're created to worship. 
Second, we are meaning makers. We're active agents in our world. We're always interpreting everything that goes on. Your wife will say something, your husband, your kids will act a certain way, your boss will say something, an email goes out, you're always, oh, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? What am I going to have to do with that? How's that going to affect my life? You're always making meaning out of your world. And can I suggest to you, here's where it gets violent, so. No one talks to you more than you do. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think I need. Oh, yeah, yeah. Think about it. You talk to yourself more than anybody else talks to you. Because you're always trying to make meaning of your life. You're interpreting your world. That's the way we're created. It's anthropology 101. And here's the worst thing. No one lies to you more than you do. I don't lie. I'm honest engine right down. But think about the inner sayings of your voice. We're going to get to it in a minute. I'm going to spit in your soup, as Alfred Adler called it, right? (laughs) And lastly, we're created in God's image. And I think what that means is we function, not ontologically, that we're spiritual, physical, and emotional, but I think more it's what we do. Anthony Hokema, in his book, In His Image, relates that and Uh, explains it very, very well. As prophets and priests and kings, that's what Jesus is, we are truth bearers. We relate to others and we manage or rule a world. So in disagreements, in conflict, as we think about, as we talk to ourselves, we are the heroes and those that we disagree with are villains and they are the devil. And those are some of the lies that come up. Well, you might say, well, I've got no problem with idols. Everything you're talking about, I mean, I love God first, and I'm enjoying everything else. I'm not an idolater. This is all a bunch of nonsense. Well, let's do a little diagnosis. Step in to the office and see if we have a problem. Can I suggest to you that we have anxiety? Anxiety comes when our idols are threatened. So think about those times that you're anxious, nervous. You freak out a little bit. You start to think, oh, that idol, I might not be able to get it. It may not be achievable. I may not have it or experience it. When does anger come? When your idols are blocked, when you can't get them. So think about those times when you get ticked off, when you get angry and mad. Usually that's when your idols are blocked. And that fleeting transitional joy comes, yes, when your idols are satisfied or achieved. It's dependent on circumstances. It comes and goes. So think about those times when you're joyful and happy and things are great. It's probably because your idols, if it's not God, your idols have been achieved or acquired or enjoyed. What does it sound like? Well, I can tell you what it sounds like. Alfred Adler, a disciple of Freud, said everybody has a magic button. So when I counseled in the D.C. area, when I had a counseling center, we started with a Ph.D. from the University of Maryland. I would start with people, first or second session, I'd say, if there was a magic button on my desk and you could push that to make your life beautiful and and perfect, what would it be? Oh, people love to talk about that. Oh, they had sometimes listen, listen, listen of the magic button. If my wife would just respect me, if my husband would just appreciate me, if my kids would give me a little respect and not be delinquents, if my boss really promoted me the way he should, if I could have health issues better than what I have. 
So if you want to know what your idols are, they come at the end of these phrases that you talk to yourself about. If only blank. If only this would happen. Or if I could just blank. If I could just do this. If I could just acquire this. If I just had blank. So what is it that you put on the end of those phrases? If only this would happen. If I could just blank. If I just had blank. And then in the Bible, if you threaten people's idols, people become livid, violent, they become vicious, and they become brutal if you read the book of Acts, right? So what are some of those things? A loving spouse, as I mentioned, respectful kids, supportive boss, a house, a car, more money, better health, or if you're like me, if the Yankees could just get back to the World Series. My poor wife, Cindy, she just said, it's okay, hon. There's always next year. There's always next year. So my if only is, can the Yankees just get back? Well, what's our application or our so what today? So what? What do we do with this? I just dumped this on you. I just spit in your soup, as Alfred Adler said, probably. You're not feeling too good about, oh. Kyle said, I'm an idolater. That there's idols in my heart. And the Heart of the problem is a problem of my heart. I've been putting <laughs> apples on the pine tree, thinking that that's going to be a good Christian life. I've been helping kids and people under me, people that I've been teaching, people that I'm shepherding, trying to put <laughs> apples from, from stop and shop on a dead tree. Why am I doing that? Well, here's our application that I can suggest to you. Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart because out of it flow the issues of life. Another translation says, guard your heart because it is a wellspring of life. Jesus said, help me, out of the abundance of the heart, go ahead, the mouth speaks. So could we also say that out of the abundance of the heart, the feet walk and go places that they should or shouldn't go? Could I say out of the abundance of the heart, my hands act? Could I say out of the abundance of my heart, my eyes see what I want to see or look for what I want to look for? Can I suggest that we should identify and repent of the idols in our heart, those ones that have replaced God or become more important than God? Can we ask God for passion and an awe to love him, to have that life in our hearts and in our souls and not just put live apples on a dead tree? Can I suggest to you that we find a real soul sharer? It's a weird term. Maybe it's your spouse. I hope it is. Maybe a mentor. Maybe a spouse and a mentor. A disciple. We're doing a lot of discipleship with our men's group here, Sal. I know Dan's very excited. All of us are excited. Find a spouse, a mentor, a sharer to be vulnerable with. To speak deeper than surface issues. To talk about the desires of your heart, your emotions, your passions, what you worship, what you love, your desires and your joy. And then also to give our lives to God in a more serious way and try to understand how much he loves us and how we break his heart when we chase after this heinous obsession. I want to close with what Micah said in 6.8. We didn't finish that off there, but at the end of Micah in, in verse Eight. Micah says, what does God require of you? 
Well, you know, three goats and maybe a lamb every once in a while. Maybe going to church 80% of the time. Maybe giving to the church. How about reading my Bible three, four times a week? Pastor will tell me every day, but, you know, my schedule's busy. Sharing my faith with somebody. Is that what God requires? Are those the apples that God wants to put on the tree? What's the answer in Micah 6, 8? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) First, act justly. Act like you're a created being, not the creator, like you're created to worship and worship justly what's right. Love mercy. Act justly, second, love mercy. Because in mercy, we find God's grace. We see how much he loves us. We find out how much he cares. We find that indescribable, marvelous love that he has for us. So love mercy, that's number two. Not what we thought we were going to read there right? We thought there'd be a list of do's and don'ts. Maybe the Ten Commandments would show up, but no. Love me. Act justly. Love mercy. And lastly, walk humbly with your God. Just walk humbly with me. You know what God wants in this new year? He wants us to walk intimately and humbly with him. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet, but boy, I want to be. And as a church, we can encourage each other to walk humbly, to act justly, and to seek mercy, and to get rid of these stinking idols in our life. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we're idolaters. We've concluded sometimes that you don't know what's best for us, that you don't love us. God, would you give us as individuals and a church the understanding that your love for us is beyond anything we've ever experienced, beyond anything we can ever describe. So God, help us to love you, to have an awe for you, a reverential respect, and give us the grace to encourage each other. Give us people in our lives that we can be vulnerable with so that we can be vulnerable with you. We ask that by your grace, by your mercy. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.